How do we handle the problem facing our country today with big tech? Today, I have on an expert, Ashley Baker, who will be discussing just that and more, much more on all sorts of topics about law. But I just want to say, my name is Nick Jamel, the creator and host of the Conversation Fire Generation. So thank you for tuning in and we're where I'm, so, I guess, tuning into the conversation of our generation, that is, where I'm solving the problems of today with the wisdom of the past. And if you're new to the show, I hope you're very ready for a interesting episode with Ashley Baker, who is the policy director at the Committee for Justice. Uh, she's an expert at the uh, Regulatory Transparency Project. She does antitrust for the Alliance on Antitrust and has worked on the confirmations for Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and uh, for Neil Gorsuch. She's really just an incredibly smart lawyer that I came across on Twitter and reached out to about coming on to talk about antitrust because I think that that is a huge problem right now facing our country is how do we keep these big tech companies in check? And I she has a lot of thoughts about ways we can do that and the problems and the changing definitions of antitrust and ways we need to be careful about changing that and tweaking that as conservatives. And also she talks a lot about how to get the right kinds of judges appointed and how to peruse through that record and make sure that they are going to be a good judge. So we discussed that as well, as well as some of the chaos around some of the confirmations she's worked on. So lots of cool stuff, lots of great information and if you are enjoying the Conversation for Our Generation, please go to conversationforgeneration.com slash subscribe to support my work for just five bucks a month. You get access to all the premium content, my community on Discord, the uh, as well as a copy of my book sent to you. So definitely check that out and find out more. Or you can just go to wherever you're listening to the podcast or watching this on YouTube. Just subscribe. Make sure you leave a good rating and review or a comment on YouTube. And those things just help in the algorithm. That's a free way that takes 10 seconds of your time if you're already listening or watching to just help out and get more people involved in the conversation of our generation. And so that really helps. So please do that. And let's get to the interview now with Ashley. Welcome to the conversation of our generation today, Ashley. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And so for those who are listening to the podcast and do not know who you are, how about, could you give them a little bit of a background on who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Ashley Baker. I'm director of public policy at an organization called Committee for Justice. Committee for Justice works in Washington, D.C. Um, we work on issues, um, constitutional issues, issues facing the judiciary and other um, issues, um, including antitrust law is um, something I've been focusing on for the past couple of years, as well as um, judicial confirmations. Awesome. Great. And so right now, uh, one of the reasons why you know, I wanted to talk to you today is there's a lot going on. I, I saw that you followed me on Twitter or reacted mm -hmm. to something randomly. And I was like, oh, this and I just looked in because uh, I was curious. And it was I just saw what you're up to. And I had to reach out because it's interesting because you're working in antitrust. You're working in you know, the judges, which really right now with big tech and everything going on with uh, antitrust involved in that, but also with crazy nominations like we've had, you just yeah. mentioned before we started with Brett, you worked on the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and all of that. I think that you're kind of at the center of very uh, hot button issues politically and culturally too, because that's really seeped in. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to get your thoughts on antitrust and probably before we get your thoughts on it, could you give a brief background on what that is and how you approach the subject? Um, so just, you know, at a really broad level, what antitrust itself is, is it refers to the regulation um, of the concentration of economic power, um, particularly with regard to trust and monopolies. Um, it's an area of law that's been pretty much well settled since around 1977. Um, this makes it a you know, really interesting time to work in antitrust right now, as there are a lot of proposals out there and ways to change the law. Um, but essentially, the um, antitrust laws, they developed in a common law type way, essentially, through the courts of the Sherman Act. Um, what the background there really is that um, 
is that the so sexual and Sherman Act prohibits activities that restrain trades if those restraints are restrictive of competition are unreasonably restrictive um, of competition in a relevant market. But what the actual text of the Sherman Act says is a little bit different, and it's restrictive to the point of that it could not really be applied and was meant to be developed through judicial interpretations. What the um, actual text says, it says it, you know, sexual in of this um, every contract combination in the form of trust or otherwise in, or conspiracy and restraint of trade or commerce along these several states or with foreign nations is declared to be illegal. And under that plain text reading of the Sherman Act, essentially everything's legal. And it took the courts a couple of decades to kind of um, explore that issue and realize that anything can be a restraint of trade, a contract to restraint of trade, shoes sold in pairs, um, any sort of um, business transaction that is inherently binding. Yeah. Um, so the courts kind of grappled with that for years until about the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So basically like a non-disclosure agreement, anything really that, because once you make a transaction, you're restraining your ability to make other transactions is basically what you're saying, right? Yes. Uh, like um, if you read it textually. That, that, that could be true. I, an NDA could still technically violate um, antitrust laws. I mean, it all depends yeah. on the details, of course. Um, but, but just any business contract, um, just a commercial mm -hmm. contract at a very basic level. Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, commerce was a lot less sophisticated and a lot more localized in those days, too, which is something um, too, to remember in the broad context of um, how antitrust law developed. But it was meant to be developed um, through the courts, through judicial interpretations through the years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so, what are some, or what are some examples of antitrust being used in the past that maybe people would be familiar with, or at least familiar with the companies involved in it? Sure. So, I mean, they're they're the standard cases, uh, or the you know classic cases that everyone refers to. Um, the um, AT and T case, the Standard Oil case, um, mm -hmm. Alcoa, um, that's you know aluminum company, and a few others. Those, Classic ones, um, those are all very quite different cases. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'd be hard to get into each one of them. I'll bring up a case more recently since we're talking a little bit more about tech um, in which it um, ultimately did, um, the court did sign with the consumers and that is Apple versus Pepper. And if you remember that is the case that the Supreme Court heard in um, 2018 decision in 2019. And it was over whether or not you as a consumer, someone who uses the app store can, um, can, sue, the, can sue Apple because of, um, you know, because they put a 30% uh, fee on top of the um, app for the developers. So the, the law before that essentially says that you can't have passed down damages in a way that you have to be the direct purchaser. Um, the court's opinion was really constrained in just that case. Um, mm -hmm. So it did not overturn the underlying precedent, which is Illinois Brick, which has the direct purchaser rule. And maybe that should be overturned. The court was never asked to do so. Um, there's a lot of theory there, but um, essentially they said yes. And their, their reasoning was, I think, I think it was superficially correct. It was one of those opinions where they, you know, they got to the right place, um, but it was more risk, you know, rested on the fact essentially that you can you know, log onto your iPhone and you know, click purchase. And I mean, that, that makes sense as a very basic rationale. Um, and I think the court got that one correct. There was a private suit though, um, which is notable. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, you know, brought through citizens and not brought through mm -hmm. CAGs or through the DOJ or FTC. Interesting. So what they were doing then that violated was they were saying we have the app store and they were putting up app up charges there, but you could only buy basically the apps through the app store. So they kind of, they were passing on extra costs is what you're saying. Well, I actually so don't know the case as well. The, um, it, it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're guilty of antitrust violations. It gives the consumer yeah. standing to sue. Um, so we'll see, you know, as these, as this litigation plays out, um, whether or not plaintiffs become successful. And I think, you know, maybe in a few cases they will, and a lot, you know, with any sort of, um, anything that involves a plaintiff's bar, you do have a lot of cases too, that, um, probably won't survive on the merits. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does, it gives them that capability, which is really important, I think. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. And so as we're talking about big tech, I think that that's the place where, the antitrust, the reason why I think this debate has come up recently is because you have Google has like over 90 something percent of the search traffic. Facebook and Twitter are the two social media platforms. And we've seen them, you know, 
gang up to shut down other social media platforms with Parler between the different tech companies and Amazon. I, I don't remember the last time I bought anything offline that wasn't off Amazon just because they're the one place that you really can go for it now. Uh, uh, with all of these big tech companies and the way that they've also been wielding power, how should we look at this from, like, from your perspective as someone who works in antitrust? What are some of the solutions you see to maybe restraining some of the power that they've been, I would say, misusing or overstepping their bounds on? Yes. So let me like back up a bit to um, fill in a bit more about what's a violation of antitrust law and what's you know just a company being big. And then also how, there are lots of things that can be done about corporate power potentially. Um, but you know you mentioned Amazon. My quick point towards that is Amazon actually um, naturally does not have that big of a percentage of the retail market. Um, wow. I, I think that one's a little bit skewed. The other companies, I mean, they are massive. So was AOL. So I mean, look at Microsoft. Um, yeah. which that's another case that's an example that one's a bit more complex the um, google case is a little bit modeled after that um they eventually fell to um fell to um innovate and move into the mobile market is what really brought them down so you see over the years you know myspace was there there are headlines that says myspace is the next monopoly how do we take on myspace how do we take on live journal as one that was in yeah. like forbes or something yeah. um and you, these are cyclical and they're eventually Replaced. I do see, you know, concerns about the amount of data they have um, and about their current size and the actions against like Parler, for example, or just, you know, content moderation in general. Mm -hmm. A lot of those, though, are not competition law concerns. So competition law in the United States, at least, it is not illegal to harm your competitor. You just can't harm the competitive process and therefore harm the consumer. Yep. So, you know, the nature of competition is essentially you are harming the competitor in one way or another. I mean, there, there are certain things that, you know, are illegal, obviously, under lots of other laws. But, um, you know, in the EU, to kind of juxtapose it to that is you can't harm, it protects the competitor. And there's a reason why they don't have these large companies like we do. Mm -hmm. So as imperfect as they are, at least we do have them. Um, and that's really important right now and from a competitiveness um, perspective. But, um yeah, it's that's kind of the core of the problem is who is harmed, and you know, there, it's hard to prove consumer harm in some of these cases when they really, you know, lie in more the area of like privacy law. Okay, I think that we need to pass a federal um, baseline privacy bill. That would be very helpful. Um, we need to actually enforce our intellectual property rights more strongly, and you know, larger tech companies are some of the biggest um, infringers on IP, um, mm -hmm. and. I think really patents are kind of one of the best anti-monopoly devices ever invented because you can have someone who's just like anyone come out of left field with an invention that they came up with and disrupt an entire market and have a property right in that new invention. Um, and that's really quite strong. And that's something that I think, you know, even for the sake of, you know, some of the companies and the businesses too, it should be enforced. There's, there's a lot of copyright infringement, for example, online, especially um, during the digital age. And patentability is a huge issue as well, especially after Alice. It's harder and harder to get a patent if you're um, patenting software. So it, that's, you know, one thing that would help. I'm not an expert on Section 230. I know that's a huge controversial issue. I have, you know, some thoughts about that, but I think, you know, I haven't seen a solution that I really like to that. I would be in favor of something that's um, very, in a very targeted way, narrowed it. Um, mm -hmm. Doing it away with it entirely would make the problem um, significantly worse for mm -hmm. everyone. But I, then, um, like I said, I'm no expert in that. So I haven't seen, I don't know what um, effective 230 reform would look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems to me, I, I, I do like your point that you made about it's not wrong to be big necessarily. And, you know, that's, I think, important. It's about abusing your power and disrupting the ability for others to compete. That's really what I think bothers me the most. And I don't like, I don't necessarily have a problem with companies that get big because I know, like you said, with my, with uh, MySpace, but they also, like someone posted that next to uh, like, it was like MySpace next to Facebook and Yahoo had the same thing where it's like, Yahoo's the next monopoly. And then next to Google, and you're like, oh yeah, a lot changed. And those things were in the last 15 to 20 years that those rose and declined. So there is obviously that competitive landscape for people to do that. It's, I guess, 
when they are abusing things, like one of the things that I've seen is I built up a Facebook page that has a thousand followers or so, and three people see a post each time, unless I pay a bunch of money. And that was not the case when I signed up. It seems to me that there's a lot of bait and switching and unclear stuff about rules for like, as a content creator, uh, how they distribute my content and they change it constantly. And I get that they're trying to improve the algorithm for the user in some ways, but they also are, it it seems like there's a lot of fishy things happening there from the creator side. And I think, I, I guess I wonder what sorts of things can be done about that. It's, I know that there's people bringing fraud or false advertising lawsuits against Facebook. Um, but do you see something like that? Like maybe individuals suing the companies because of things like false advertising, fraudulent or not upholding their terms of service, things like that versus an actual government action would maybe be the best way to put a check on these companies. Or do you think the government needs to step in? Well, I, I think you do have a good point regarding the terms of service and that's, you know, a case by case sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like you brought up the, your page though. And I think there are a couple of aspects going on there. One of them is actually a, a bad thing, but a good thing for corporate power is that these algorithms are kind of getting a lot less effective um, as they're not as effective as what they used to be. And some of that's because of regulation. And some of that's because too, just having a ton of data, the more data that you have, it's not that as if it gets better. We had a point kind of a diminishing returns. You don't, you can't really build a data moat that is so deep. There's this um, great and recent Horowitz article um, about um, data moats, like what it's advising mid-sized company, at what point should you stop investing in getting your data? Uh, mm-hmm. And it illustrates a really good point. But, you know, there's, there are solutions in contract law. I think privacy law, there's, you know, a lot of, there, and, but I do agree with you that they they make up the rules as they go. Well, Twitter particularly makes up the rules as they go. Some of the others, I, I think, make more good faith efforts. And sometimes too, so when you see all these tech hearings, you see people from both sides of the aisle, they both want to regulate them. They both want to, for example, reform 230, but they have totally opposite reasons for why they want to do it. Um, the left wants to do it so they can crack down more on speech and the right wants to do it so that they, you know, their content won't be regulated, which in reality is not really what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, there's also this push and pull that, you know, they bring the CEOs in front of Congress and um, kind of tell them what they want. And that certainly affects how they behave, but they're being told, you know, from both sides, I, I think, you know, which one they, if, if it's, a, I don't know if it's a matter of which one they decide to listen to or just conflicting messages or just trying to appease them and not, you know, have a disastrous regulation. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's a great point. And I wonder if, I, I guess, what I wonder is how can you take some of those companies and I don't know if it's section 230 or what, but make them liable on the intellectual property side, like at least make them choose because right now they're playing this in between space. And I think this is something that a lot of conservatives are upset about where it's like, we're just a publisher, but also we're really curating content a lot. And we're pushing certain things down on the algorithms and pulling certain things up. So it seems like they're really playing both sides of it quite a bit to get all the benefits of being a publisher, but also all the benefits of being able to push, you know, what they, you know, or rather, sorry, I should say all of being all the benefits of being a platform and then also being able to kind of act as a publisher in many ways. Do you, I guess, do you think that that's something that needs to be reformed first, or do you think that there are other channels that we should look at if we want to curb some of their abuses that, I think are pretty evident. So I think that's one tool in the toolbox. And I'm overall, um, you know, I'm overall, I think that 230 has done more good than harm through the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it perhaps, it, you know, needs, I'm glad that Congress is revisiting it. Um, but it, the publisher platform dichotomy is not exactly how it really works in the law. It's more like distributor of content versus um, publisher. And it's, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to decide really which, you know, what to take down, but I think illegal, like pirated content is a very obvious one that should, there should be more enforcement of that, for example, but to their credit, the platforms do do a really great job of taking down the truly awful stuff. 
Um, mm -hmm. And I was not aware of how much really awful content there is on these platforms. Mm -hmm. And not just saying their, their percentage of getting, uh, which I know there's the New Zealand incident recently, but they get like 99.8% or something of terrorist related content um, picked up before anyone sees it. Mm -hmm. um, so the algorithms have gotten pretty good for that. They need to help that for like IP, but then, you know, you have the problem of potentially over moderating. So mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, overall, I prefer less moderation to more, and I definitely prefer more speech to less. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know. It's, it's a tough question. Like I said, I don't know what a nuance, you know, look at 230 and look like. I know the phrase otherwise objectionable is something a lot of people talk about how that's very broad and it was intended to be brought up the time. Maybe, maybe we need to look at that. I don't know what a solution would look like. Um, privacy is another issue though that I, I think we need to tackle. And, you know, we were getting to earlier about, you know, Parler and the situation of not being able to start up companies. I would bring up one point on that. So I was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee on antitrust about um, three weeks ago. And Senator Lee asked me a question. It was a very good question. And he was saying, you know, they tell you, you, you should build your own. They tell you again, you should build your own. And then you can't build your own. And then something like, you know, parlor happens. Yeah. Um, and, and then we'll get into the specifics of the parlor situation because it's legally a lot more complicated than um, it seems. It's not really as much of a necessarily an antitrust issue. Um, it's, it's a problem, but it's not necessarily an antitrust issue. But I would point out that, you know, there aren't that many entrepreneurs who are just building another Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. Sure, some people want to build another platform for conservatives or for a niche, but the innovation is going on in things like Clubhouse, for example. Look at the massive VC investment in that recently. Um, yeah. Entrepreneurs, they kind of, you know, they come in from the side, not to replace, yep. um, so to speak. Yep. Yeah, I work my, so this is my side thing that I enjoy doing, but I do work in a tech company and I see, and we're kind of, a, I see a lot of the tech companies in our space and it's really interesting what they're able to create um, for sure. But yeah, it, I think that that parlor thing seemed very, very fishy as you just saw a domino effect of like, <laughs> I don't know, everything kind of getting taken away from them one by one. And it just, and I also, I guess here's another one that concerns me is companies like Stripe or I don't think PayPal's done this, but Stripe I feel like has where they'll not process payments for certain people. And, I, you know, it's like, how far are you from the point where because of your political views, you can't get a visa card either it, when they're discriminating on those sorts of things. I, I think that that's another place where I, I don't, want to overregulate, but you also have to be concerned about the fact that you, all of these things seem to be targeted at a certain section of people as well, because it's generally targeted at conservative content creators or conservative businesses that all these companies seem to gang up. And I don't want to say gang up against, because that's probably uh, legally opening myself oh. up, <laughs> but <they're, laughs> for ac of accusations, but it, they're, they all seem to be against the same things ideologically. Yeah, and I would add that they're not against the same things because there's collusion, because that's mm -hmm. what arguments can be. They're just all against, you know, they're yeah. all liberal because they're Silicon Valley companies and one of them makes yeah. a decision to take Trump off the platform and like once the first shoe is dropped, then the rest of them do it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know as much about the uh, issue relating to Plaid and people. I have heard a, a bit about that happening. I think that's less of a frequent occurrence yeah. um, and a contract violation, but I don't know if there's a way to maybe make these contracts um, so that you can't necessarily discriminate. Mm -hmm. I know I've seen some proposals to essentially um, on the state and even, I, I don't think this can happen on the federal level, but um, make conservatives a protected class under civil rights law. I I'm overall wary of opening that up because of you know where it has been opened up in the past, but it also has been opened up so broadly already. I don't know. I'm not a civil rights attorney. Um, I think that's a creative idea. I had not heard that until recently. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know if there's a way to apply, you know, like fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms to these contracts without them being public utilities, because you don't want to go into the territory of a company becoming a public utility. Um, mm -hmm. and that's when you really have the regulation concerns. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, I thought about that too. And I'm, it's almost like, then you have to let, you know, Democrats into the GOP and, you know, mm -hmm. Republicans in to the DNC and all that, like you can't, you know, so that would be very tough to not it's be able to. The wrong way it's illegal. Like, yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah. Then you're excluding other, yeah, specific um, protected <laughs> classes that are already, yeah, it, it gets really complicated. I yeah. think. Um, but some of my concerns though today are, you know, obviously the, the what the platforms are, are doing is bad, but I look at antitrust law through the lens of bro more broadly antitrust um, mm -hmm. and not, I, I don't look at this as specifically a tech issue. Mm -hmm. I suppose because I was working on a lot of these regulatory issues before they became tech issues, and now unfortunately they're tech issues. Um, yeah. But a lot of the proposals that are on the table today would go way far beyond the tech industry. And those would really append the consumer welfare standard, which um, you know came into being around you know around 1977 um, was recognized. 1977, 1978, then a year later, the um, Supreme Court actually recognized the Sherman Act as a consumer welfare prescription. And that's been, since then, has developed as the guidepost. And it's become um, this neutral underlying standard that is, it's not statutory, obviously. It's a set of principles that guide um, rules and regulation and um, you know, analysis um, that uh, gives judges something to go by, something that's tractable. Because before that, antitrust law in the 1960s and 50s was a complete mess. Um, <laughs> it, it was being used for, and speaking of, you know, using things for left-leaning purposes, you can use antitrust law for, you know, environmental purposes, for redistribution of wealth, which is what they're blatantly trying to do with it right now. Um, you, you can use it for like any left-leaning cause under the sun. The right can't really use it for much. Um, yeah. I mean, not that we should. I, you know, we're principally opposed to that. Um, we're also not very good at it at the end of the day. <laughs> they have <laughs> decades of experience doing that. Um, mm -hmm. is a, you know, something I say halfway jokingly. But you know, the, that, the law can be weaponized very easily in this area, especially considering that um, it took so long to develop. And that's why I wish a lot of conservatives would realize, you know, that they're really tearing down a fence that took a long time to build. And mm -hmm. it's built for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and the uh, consumer standard is basically that what you know, antitrust should be applied when the consumer is harmed, correct? That's what you're talking about here? Well, when, when the competitive process, which is dynamic, mm -hmm. is harmed and that causes harm to the consumer. Yes. Um, so you, it's a bit broader than that. And one misconception about the consumer welfare standard, by the way, you hear a lot of people saying, well, it's only concerned with price. How do you apply it to digital markets? It's been applied to a narrow set of other things since then, you know, effects on innovation, supply, um, mm -hmm. a, a couple, you know, a, several different factors. The Microsoft case, for example, is, is an example of a you know, non-price factor. So it is a bit broader than that, but it's not um, broad enough that anything that doesn't, you know, belong there within competitive law, that nothing there can be addressed. And it gives a guidepost for judges. Yep. Yeah. Like if you're, it doesn't matter on price in the medical world, if it means that you're not getting, you know, you're doing something maybe to not allow new drugs to come to market or new innovation to happen there that could cure illnesses. That could be something where you're harming the competitive world, but it may not affect my price, but it may mean that I don't, we don't have access to new drugs that could potentially come and cure us of illnesses. That could be, yeah, that could be one analysis. It could be, you know, if that's, that's um, analogy taken the stream, something could be per se illegal. Um, mm -hmm. That's when you have, you know, kind of the really bad criminal behavior, which is pretty black and white, actually. Um, and those are, those are the really bad cases that really do um, protect consumers or you know, the naked price fixing type cases and cartels and um, that sort of issue. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest challenges facing our culture today is the porn problem and that's why i'm proud to be working with covenant eyes to help nip this problem in the bud so if you struggle with porn or if you want to protect your family from this issue covenant eyes can help covenant eyes is an accountability software that helps you create good habits when you're using your computer or other devices that are connected to the internet and so you can have this plan for yourself for your whole family and using my promo code of convo when you go there c-o-n-v-o you will get your first 30 days free so head on over to covenantize.com and use the promo code convo c-o-n-v-o to get your first 30 days free that way you can start living a porn free life for you and for your family now back to the conversation okay that's that's really interesting and so we've kind of gotten into how these things get enacted a little bit here and there, but I'm uh, curious because you also work with holding judges accountable as part of your work. And 
you mentioned that it's not as much uh, looking at them after they're in, but how like vetting them as they come in and their nomination process. So what could you give people a little bit, I guess, uh, background on what you do there and what that work entails? Sure. Um, let me tie that into antitrust first, if, that, sure. if that's okay. Um, I, I think that actually um, the two, there, there's there's a commonality between um, what I'm about to talk about in the consumer welfare standard, but there's this misconception and people who are talking about antitrust now who um, you know do who do support constitutionalist judges who are saying that antitrust law was developed the way it was developed was through judicial activism. Um, which isn't true because as the history of the Sherman Act said, and as Amy Coney Barrett said during her confirmation hearing, by the way, and um, also Justice Gorsuch said during his, as Scalia said, uh, well, he said during his that he didn't understand antitrust law during law school because there's nothing to understand um, and that now he does. Um, but it keeps judicial activism kind of out of the antitrust litigation. So, I mean, those two things are mutually exclusive in that you could have something that develops essentially as um, common law through the course and also have activist judges, but that's when you get, you know, a ton of rulings that are um, completely unpredictable and um, you have the ability to apply it to, you know, other you know, policy motives. So that's something that keeps judges on track and to kind of, to, to circle back now to what I've done on judicial confirmations. So my organization, we, we work on um, helping confirm and um, confirm constitutionalist judges, textualists, and originalists who are going to you know, uphold the text of the Constitution as written. Uh, we also analyze their lower court records. We talk about Supreme Court cases, um, a number of them that are on the docket each term, and about federal judges as well. Um, and we really advocate for a strong constitutionalist judiciary. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And so that's actually one thing that I'm, I am curious about, because uh, at least one thing that you mentioned is Checking people's records, what, because I hear I, as a layman who is, has not gone through law school and everything, I hear this all the time when a Supreme Court nominee comes up and they're like, oh yeah, we're looking in the record, here's this and that. What sorts of things do you look for and how do you research that? Just their previous cases and what the arguments were and how they decided, or is there more that goes into it? Right. I mean, aside from the basic set of things that would get them nominated in the first place, such as, you know, background, where they've worked, you know, you, you have to make certain steps in your career to eventually get appointed. Um, you start with the cases, with their opinions. And it, you know, the what, how many opinions that you have or in what types of them you have to evaluate really depend on the nominee. Um, and you know, like Kavanaugh, for example, there were he had a he, he had a long track record of 303 or something. I think cases or sorry opinions written in the D.C. Circuit, and you're going to get a broader variety of things and more cases related to the Ministry of Law and the government there. Whereas if you're stuck out like the Sixth Circuit, you're going to have a totally different caseload. So yeah. it can't. So you do have to look more at principles, and that's why it's important to look at you know principles and not at outcomes. And they have different, you know, amounts of time that they've been on the bench. And I don't think, you know, more time on the bench as a federal judge necessarily means that they will be a better justice. A lot of people criticize Justice Kagan, for example. I mean, she's Solicitor General, but I think that's, you know, very relevant experience. I, I think it is possible to not, you know, be on the D.C. Circuit for 12 years before being confirmed. Um, I'm, not, I'm definitely not advocating for someone with no experience, but... <laughs> There are different types of experience, and there, there are still things that give you insight into how they will rule, um, as long as there's enough of that record. Um, mm -hmm. We look through that, and then secondary is kind of any of their extrajudicial writings, as they're called, um, speeches given, um, involvement in um, you know, federal society, American Constitution Society, ABA, um, you know, what, and university speeches and what they've written um, kind of go, is kind of a secondary consideration to kind of get a bit of insight into how they um, think and how they might rule. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, I, I've always kind of wondered that what all that, what all goes into that beyond, I figured that, you know, you'd look at their cases and <laughs> where they went to school, but that's, that's interesting. Okay. And then, so you mentioned that you worked on the, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination from behind the scenes. I mean, a little bit as much as you can maybe tell, you know, what, what's that sort of process look like for you and kind of what's your role in that? Um, well, for any of them, particularly let's just stick with the Kavanaugh um, 
vacancy because he's actually his cases were relevant to my expertise actually and that so that worked out really well he had a ton of administrative law opinions i think like 103 or something of oh, wow. um, his opinions were administrative law and agency related so i i you know first approach things from that area that's my expertise see how he looks at agency deference um and different um mostly you know, issues involving government agencies um a lot of deference a lot of Fourth Amendment is something else that I've focused on quite a bit. Um, and anything that involves like really commerce. Um, some of the Second Amendment stuff is I, I there are other people who are better at that than me, but those are really my focus areas. So with the Kavanaugh confirmation, there's plenty of material for me. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. And, and he was great on those issues. So yeah. And that would be basically saying, you know, when a law gets passed and they're like, okay, EPA, you decide how this gets implemented. And that you're saying that those sorts of cases that come up then when people push back against the EPA doing something, those, those sorts of administrative laws, that's where you're focused in? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they arrive at the DC circuit in that case in, in different ways, um, different you know, legal challenges and whether or not, you know, who should interpret a law that's ambiguous, should the agency like interpret its own rules. Um, and, and those, there's still a lot of lingering questions regarding that, but it also gives a good insight into how do they read the text? what statutory interpretation that's really um important i mean sprinkforder who said um first thing you do is read the text read the text read the text i, I think that's um a great quote and how they apply that i think makes a lot of sense it, and one thing is during the confirmation hearings you can't well some people do but they will not answer questions related to how would you any sort of hypothetical about how they could potentially rule in a um, certain case or any questions that any question that's disguised as something else that's uh, basically how would you rule on Roe v. Wade or any other matter. Um, and it's one thing just to make one last antitrust point is there's actually a House Judiciary Committee hearing about two weeks ago, which a Seventh Circuit judge who was actually considered um, a front runner for two Supreme Court seats during the Obama administration, um, or at least close to a front runner, was testifying on antitrust law. And I, I think it's completely appropriate for a judge to come testify about cameras in the courtroom, things that affect judiciary more broadly. Um, when it comes to this more substantive type stuff, you, you're giving their future litigants who are you know watching to see how you might rule in a case. Mm. And that's one of, one of, I would say, two reasons why those questions can't be asked in confirmation hearings either. So Ginsburg actually, so this is called the Ginsburg standard. She started doing first during her confirmation hearing, she refused to answer any questions related to how she might rule another case. Or she said, no hints, no forecasts, no previews. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's so great that that is a good standard to have. Mm -hmm. Yep, because I think it then circles around the philosophy that you have and you can have it and it brings back the debate then every time you have a Supreme Court nomination, like the textualist versus i guess originalist is slightly different right and then i don't fully know the distinction between all the philosophies but versus something that's more loose on what you know an interpretive you're able to have that discussion and allow the people to vote in someone who's going to rule with a certain have a certain philosophy that they bring to the bench rather than just i don't know electing another senator who's going to vote a certain way, basically, is what you, it kind of changes the, what you're doing there, it seems like. Well, one side would certainly like that, um, <laughs> kind of like the more politicians in robes, and that's, you know, that's the core of the differences between the, you know, textualist and originalist camp and the, you know, judicial activists um, and living constitutionalist is they're focused just on outcomes. Mm -hmm. really. um, they're focused on policy outcomes. They're not focused on um, specifically the guidelines and rules. How do they get there? Mm -hmm. um, and we also have, you know, as conservatives, have a further uphill battle to climb in, you know, any sort of in overturning any sort of bad decisions, too, because by nature, conservative jurisprudence is very incremental. It moves very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, conservatives are less likely to just directly, you know, overturn Roe v. Wade in one fell swoop. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that'll never happen. I mean, I'm just using that as kind of the stereotypical example of how cases are, um, it, it takes a while often. Um, mm -hmm. And that um, the dynamics of the court have shifted differently. One big thing about each new appointee is every time there's a new justice, it's, it 
changes the overall dynamic of the court, both in little ways and that it's little ways in which it influences kind of each justice just in, by having that new person there, but also in the broader scheme of things, um, even if you're not close to just a 50-50 split or, you know, 5-4, mm -hmm. um, sorry, not 50-50, if you're going over, you know, yeah. one way or the other, it's um, the direction of the court is really what it's about, usually, as opposed to it being about the individual justice. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And so, you mentioned that you work with looking to get constitutionalist and textualist judges in there. What, what is the difference then between the textualist reading of something versus like originalism, or is there a difference kind of like a distinction without a difference? Cause I hear both of those. It seems to me from my perspective that, you know, the Gorsuch case uh, where he decided with um, on, I forget what it exactly was about, but that, transgenderism somewhat it affects men it's kind of is discriminating based on sex because you're saying that then a man can't wear a dress whereas the originalist look of it might be well that's not what we weren't looking at that we were trying to make sure that based on this law that you weren't saying you know, no men allowed not i i don't know is that like the originalist maybe takes more context into what people meant versus the textualist is saying here's what the law says is that kind of the difference? That's kind of some stuff at a really broad level, but they're often kind of the same thing. You know, one can, you know, talk about original public meaning versus, um, you know, statutory interpretation. Um, sometimes those can diverge in how you interpret certain specific laws, but overall it's, they are, you know, parallel, coherent, you know, intertwined mm -hmm. um, to like, you know, methods of jurisdiction of jurisprudence that are very similar. Going back to the case you're referring to, though, that was um, the Bostock case, the Title VII case, um, yeah. which a lot of conservatives are very, very mad about. Um, the backlash over that, I was, I mean, I understand that it was, it was a big, monumental case. I don't think that his decision there meant that Justice Gorsuch was becoming a judicial activist. No. And it seems that it was interpreted by a lot of people that way, and that there are a lot of People were even saying, you know, we should abandon originalism because of that one decision, which is, I think, really ridiculous. Um, you know, like I was talking about, you know, tearing down the fence that we built for a good reason. It took the conservative legal community a long time also to get to where we are now with the majority of the court. Um, and once, you know, we see that basic underlying principle that we have, then we give it all away. Um, mm -hmm. we, we don't have anything. And, but that particular opinion, it, in my view, he, his analysis, I think, was flawed. It was, I've described as, and I've heard other people, other people, I think, use kind of the same term as hyperliteralism. He, um, you know, yeah. he took the very, very basic literal meaning of the word to an extent um, that was almost over analytical in a way that um, just did not comport with the law. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it was, you know, they don't bat at 100%. Yeah. Um, and that was a big case to, you know, swing and miss at. I, I'll give you that, but I don't, it's not the end of the world. I think, I think he's not at all likely to become an um, activist judge. I think he's um, one of the ones who I have pretty strong confidence in um, mm -hmm. will not drift. He's not going to be a just, he's not just a suitor because of that. Um, yeah. It's ridiculous the amount, and there's the argument now for common good originalism. A lot of it sprouts out of just that opinion. There were a couple of people who have been making that argument since beforehand. Um, their arguments are a bit more, um, a bit more nuanced in, in some ways that I won't get into here. But um, there was a, definitely a backlash after that opinion, saying, "Oh, your, your originalism it isn't working um, mm -hmm. because of this one case." I know you've been appointing the wrong nominees for years. Uh, and there have been very specific reasons why they have been good nominees and will continue to be good nominees. Sure, Roberts has been a disappointment, but um, I think the person who would have been appointed instead of Roberts would been, have been a much more of a disappointment than um, yeah. Roberts was. Um, I, I think there's a lot of historical context that they're missing out on as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not like he's Roberts yet uh, or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, he will never be. I mean, I, he's nowhere close to being yeah. um, no. for that matter. He and that's the thing is I, it was one bad case and I think the next couple of weeks a couple of things came out that were showed real solid like pretty hard line you know no nonsense as well on cases that you wanted that you, there sh you shouldn't have been messing around with so that was good I, I think it I was I, I listened to a lot of Catholic radio and 
Catholic radio was not very happy at that point (laughs) after that, but, um, and and understandably so, because you would hope that he would have probably, I I think it was decided wrongly. And I didn't like his logic when I was listening to it read, but I also am not an expert. So I, you know, I, I have my thoughts, but I also know I didn't study for a lot of years. So I find it hard to criticize people like him or people in your position who have really gone through it. I've taken one business law class to get through my marketing classes. So <laughs> there's I think not anyone uh, can read and understand, you know, a lot of these cases, but I do think you have to ask yourself, are these people, are they upset about the outcome, which is fine to be upset about the outcome and the reasoning. That's a totally reasonable mm-hmm. position. Um, I agree with people on that. Um, but some are not um, as concerned about how they got there. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And that was my thing is I didn't like the twist that it could be because then it's like, well, anytime you say no to a man on the basis of him being a man, then you have a lot of, or, you know, the way people dress and all those things that kind of opens it up for, I don't know, almost too wide a door on that with that very hyper-focused reading, you know, it's like there was the guy who wanted to start the church of cannabis so that he could smoke pot for his, as part of his religion. It's like, well, you know, we had, (laughs) under that reading, maybe that would stand, but I think they, at least Indiana, I think it was Indiana Supreme Court struck that down. I think it was here in Indiana when that happened a while back, probably happened in other places too, but yeah. Uh, so courses methodology though, it reminds me of this um, quote that I really like from Judge Learned Hand. He said, you can't build a fortress out of a dictionary. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's really applicable there. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. That's awesome. And, and so what are some paths forward uh, with someone as someone who's, you know, been in hearings and Senate hearings and things like that? What are, I guess, what would you say is one of the biggest problems facing us right now in your area of expertise? And what would you say is the ideal solution for that based on what, based on your work? So by we, do you mean um, just, you know, all of the United States or specifically, you know, my kind of, you know, camp, so to speak? I would say biggest problem you see facing the United States at that policy level, like what the biggest problem that we have to figure out going forward and, you know, what is that solution? Whether that's, you know, some of the things that we see with our senators who, you know, don't know the first thing about the internet asking, you know, trying to write antitrust laws against Facebook or, uh, whatever it might be, um, what, what would you say that is that biggest problem? I'd say there, there are two or so primary problems. Mm-hmm. And one is that Congress has usurped all its authority to the executive branch. Um, they've ceded all of their power. They're no longer legislating. Even as bad as I complain about these legislative proposals, you know, how bad they are, they would have to go through you know, more of a legislative process to, um, you know, in order to pass legislation. And that would be a good thing to restore the you know, role of the first branch. And you also have the fact that you know, the Supreme Court, you should not have national protests every time a justice passes away or retires. Mm-hmm. Um, or every time there's a hearing and there's far too much power given to and focus on just nine individuals. Mm-hmm. That said, though, also there's um, court packing is a proposal mm-hmm. that is still, I would say, somewhat gaining steam. I, I, it would take a lot um, for court packing to actually um, actually happen. Uh, it, well, we would have to no longer have the filibuster to start. I, I think that would probably fail. There are enough on the left who realize that would be bad for them in the long run. But that's a really dangerous idea. It's historically court packing proposals have been there there have been several periods of history in which you've seen a lot of these and it's not just um in the new deal era but through the years these court reform type proposals they're used to influence the judiciary and influence outcomes mm-hmm. um, particularly their studies it influences the chief justice the most um mm-hmm. although I, I would argue there are lots of different ways right now to influence john roberts um or some would say that um but it's definitely been used as a tactic too so even in that extent even if they're you know, really going for that goal you have um the court restructuring issue yep yeah it's it may not even be about actually packing the court it's give us this decision that we want now or we will do it sort of it's kind of holding the court hostage to rule a certain way that's i mean mm-hmm. that's really what fdr's did it was pass my stuff that you think is unconstitutional or i'll just pack the court uh and that I, had I, an influence for years yeah um, yeah it did 
And, and and I think that that's that to me seems like a huge threat right now. And I and I liked your point about the Congress ceding all of their power to the bureaucracy because, my, well, my uh, representative is fairly entrenched. I don't think we're getting Andre Carson out anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, considering he's basically inherited that from his aunt, but it at the same time there is a possibility of voting him or a senator out whereas i can't vote out the epa agent that's you know just saying here's how i you know want to interpret this law and that's how it's going to be yeah i agree with that one quick one last point about um court packing versus so is um i mentioned you know it is used to influence the chief justice but i would add and also um kind of somewhat defensive Chief Justice Roberts is the Chief Justice has a very much invested interest in preserving the court as an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very strong, compelling interest enough for them to want to, you know, rule maybe a certain way or, you know, nudge themselves and into a certain direction or nudge the other justices. So that's kind of how that happens. But yes, that's a great point. Um, and I mean, you have your political appointees, obviously, but mm-hmm. you also have the fact that there are lower appointees who are, you know, being stuffed into agencies. Um, that are there for a very long time. You have civil servants, and uh, and a lot of it too is these agencies become. I mean, there it's there's so much red tape. I mean, it's a bigger regulatory problem that you have these behemoths that um, do not function well um, and are packed by you know, different political parties. And there are a lot of dynamics there, a lot mm-hmm. of inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. I and it's just a incredible swelling up of the federal government and the budget because of that too. And antitrust, by the way, I think is um, one of the, so the consumer welfare standards, one of the largest narrowings of federal federal power in the past mm-hmm. half century, I would say. Yeah. And so some of the things that we, the proposals that we've seen on antitrust front would be potentially doing away with that in a foul swoop, whether it's from the right or the left because of a lack of understanding really of what right is, that was it kind depends of on the proposal, answer. but most, yes, lot, most of them are pretty damaging. There, there are proposals out there that um, aren't so bad and, you know, eliminating exemptions, for example, for from antitrust law, that's something I could support um, in giving agencies. And I never argue for increased agency budgets. I, you know, was just talking about inflated agencies, <laughs> but um, maybe they, they are um, a bit, um, they do have not as many resources they need for those specific cases, um, allowing them to pursue a bit more litigation. That would be helpful, allowing them to pay their um, attorneys like market rates. So they're not going off to tech companies instead. Mm-hmm. Um, that would all be helpful, I think. And there, there are certain things that I could get behind. Mm-hmm. But changing the underlying legal standards is not one of them. Yep. I appreciate that. And great. Well, I think that wraps up our questions for today. Do you have anything else that you wanted to touch on before we sign off or anything else that you wanted to add on that? Gosh, um, I wouldn't know where to begin. I I can talk about (laughs) confirmations for a long time. These are both really broad, um, really broad issues that are really hot topics right now. Mm -hmm. I I think I'm, I'm glad the the conservative movement is having this conversation, by the way, mm-hmm. over, you know, common good originalism versus, you know, originalism. And um, that that's, I, I think it's breeding a lot of good conversations that need to be had. Um, I think that one side of it's completely wrong. Um, but I do think that there's some good in having that. I'm just, I'm worried of that division splitting the movement apart. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know that for me, I've come from a very hardcore libertarian side of things to be much closer, uh, you know, aligned to a traditional, more uh, common good, even conservatism. I still think, uh, I still have very libertarian views when it comes to federal government versus me, but at like a more local level, I see a lot more of that common good thing playing into it. And so I know I've been moved and I see a lot of people that are young conservatives that are even probably more on the side of a traditional way of doing things versus people my parents' age who I would say when they're conservative are a little bit more libertarian on things. You're kind of Gen X level of people seem to be, have that kind of 80s Reagan sort of, or at least the, how the 80s Reagan movement is portrayed in that, uh, you know, big business, you know, trickle down type of thing. So it's I think the nationalism brand of conservatism is dangerous right now, particularly as we're trying, as the economy is trying to repair from COVID, as we're competing mm-hmm. with China. Um, I think it's really short-sighted, and you know, 
those values are, there's a lot of tech bashing going on. That's why antitrust has become such a tech issue. And when they've realized, oh, well, privacy, privacy law is really hard to pass. It's really hard to amend 230. They view antitrust as this hammer and mm -hmm. you're going after kind of everyone, um, just kind mm -hmm. of like throwing darks in the dark. And there, or even I've seen over the past few days is the unionization votes with the Amazon conservatives arguing like in favor of those unions in ways that just, you know, would make absolutely no sense. They're saying things that are contradictory with Citizens United. Um, there are some really core things that I, I think it's some of it too is a matter of those views have not maybe necessarily developed with some people. I mean, that, that sounds, I don't mean to sound condescending in that way, but um, mm -hmm. I think some of these, some of this is a learning process in terms of the mm -hmm. context. Um, and you know, they kind of came into it from the Trumpian perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder how much of it is that factor and how much of it is really people rebelling against the establishment. Yeah, it's like there needs to be a correction back towards that somewhat, maybe. But I think that there's an overcorrection in the strong like tariff everybody everywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, I think you can have there's an argument to be had about, you know, if China is going to play dirty and subsidize their steel and do all this stuff to, you know, fight against us, then. Okay, well then tariff Chinese steel, you know, if they're subsidizing <laughs> it, legitimate. correct yeah. that that type of stuff targeted things like that seem to me like they make sense in preserving a free market and protecting, you know, yourself against a sort of a financial attack in that way or economic you know, attacks. But there's also this sense that it's like we just need to tariff everybody. And I'm like, no, that's not this this, this broad-based solution that's going to help everything. It's just going to raise your prices <laughs> amid yeah, it's already going to be probably a in highly inflationary period anyways. Yeah. I mean, one thing to kind of tie all this really together is, so I've said for quite a while that, you know, there's a massive overlap between the antitrust populist, I'll call them on the, those who want to weaponize antitrust on the right of center, and the... Um, the common good originalism movement, nationalist conservative movement. I mean, so much, if you had a Venn diagram of the two, it'd just be a complete circle. There's 100% overlap between these two issues. And mm -hmm. it tells you, you know, really at the end of the day, this isn't about originalism. It's not about, um, it's not about originalism. It's not about antitrust. It's just about power. They were out of power when the establishment was in power. And these are different, you know, ways of approaching that, um, whether it's, you know, getting power from the left or from, you know, within the party, um, you know, this is not really coming as much to surface until after Trump is no longer in office. And now it's, you know, the Republican Party has been doing it wrong for decades. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I, I think that's an interesting point. And I think that is a pretty good note to leave it on. So I, and I probably ought to get running and I know you probably ought to get running as well. So Thank you so much for coming on today, Ashley. I really appreciate it. This was a really interesting discussion. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. I don't know about you, but I was amazed at that interview. Just, I, I need to go back and listen because I think I was understanding and following along, but I need to really digest it because especially with the legal stuff, I know for me, I need to kind of hear it again when I'm not trying to follow in a way that I'm hosting a conversation, right? And making sure that I can dive into the details and catch more as well. So definitely need to go back and listen, but hopefully you got a lot out of this. If you did, make sure you subscribe to YouTube if you're watching there or the podcast, wherever you're listening or just to the blog or even my newsletter. You can subscribe conversationofourgeneration.com slash newsletter. And if you go there, you'll get my weekly rundown of top discussions. That also includes the two podcast episodes for the week, but we'll also have a lot more of what I'm listening to, watching, etc., reading, even sometimes. So definitely check that out because I think it's a great way to stay up with kind of week to week what are some of the big trends and topics that are affecting our dialogue as a, as a society, as a culture. And so I think that that is a great thing that we can, that I try to help offer. And then also if you want to support my work, go to conversationforgeneration.com slash subscribe for just $5 a month. You can get all the premium content, access to my Discord channel, any future premium content that go, comes out, as well as a copy of my book. So lots of great stuff for just $5 a month. I've already had some people rolling through and subscribing more and more, so definitely check that out because I think it is a great value and it's a great way to support what I'm doing here. But if you just want to do it for free, subscribe to the newsletter. You can share the podcast, share the 
you know, YouTube videos, all that stuff. Follow me on Twitter, at Conovargin. Those things are free, painless, easy ways to support what I'm doing here at the Conversation of Our Generation and get more people involved. And so thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. I hope you enjoyed it. And let's get the dialogue going. I'll talk to you next time.